And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Cood Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Kids Johnson on the Cood Street Podcast. Welcome back, kids. You haven't been with us for quite a while, but, but you used to be a regular here. Thank you. I'd like to think I'm a sporadic, um, but yes, I'm delighted to be back. It's really fun to, I always love talking to you folks and every excuse I have, I'm happy to do it. <laughs> and this, this year I get to boast that, that two of my podcast mates are among the guests of honor at World Fantasy in Kansas City. Uh, That's so true. Congratulations to both of you. Thank you. It's it, it's sort of a very fun coincidence because, I mean, I of course I wasn't asking who else were going to be the guests when they they asked me, um, but when, as I found out that Jonathan was one of them, I was like, and that makes it extra special. I and think so too. I think it's going to be great. The two of you are at the opposite ends of the spectrum because I'm guessing, without looking at the full list, that Jonathan Jonathan will be traveling the farthest distance to get to Kansas City. And you will be traveling the shortest distance. That's right. For me, it's about a 45-minute drive if I drive the speed limit. <laughs> Hang on. If you drive the speed limit? Yeah. Well, that's, that is dubious, actually. <laughs> In Kansas, they're allowed to shoot you for exceeding the speed limit. Yeah, that's true. Well, maybe they don't shoot you. You do get, but but they they don't they aren't nice to you. So, um, although I will say that after a certain age, I have found that people don't give me tickets. I'm sorry, uh, this is going to get me in trouble because now from here for the rest of my life, they will always give me a ticket instead of a citation. But I do I do like a car that is zippy, and my new car is like so much zippier than all previous cars I've ever had. So it gets me in trouble on a pretty regular basis. So this means we're going to see you flying on your way into the convention. Sort I'll of. be handcuffed and I'll be, I'll yeah. have to get like a special 72 hour leave to get <laughs> out. Yeah. I'd love to see how you persuade the judge that a, that, a, that a fantasy convention is a good reason to be allowed out so that you can see people. Well, see, I'm just going to lie. I'm going to tell them I'm donating a kidney to somebody and uh, <laughs> that, so I'll be busy. Um, because what kind of a hard-hearted person would you have to be to say no? I mean, they might need proof though. So there's that. It does, though, make it sound more like an episode of Grey's Anatomy than a, than a moral fantasy convention. That's true. You know, a notable felon who is released in order to give a kidney and then breaks out of the hospital. <laughs> and goes and does convention panel. And goes to convention. <sighs> let, let, lest we just do this for the next hour, let me raise an actual question um, for Kidge. Because you've um, – let me preface this by saying that I was – reading about a book you may have heard of by a professor named McGurl called The Program Era, in which he argues that a lot of American post-war fiction was defined by creative writing programs in universities and the GI Bill. And the idea was veterans of World War II could get into universities for free. They'd all read The Naked and the Dead, so they all wanted to write their memoirs. And his argument was that kind of a large chunk of American fiction over the last 70 years has been defined by the presence of MFA programs. Now, you've taught in MFA programs, you've taught graduate creative writing students, you've taught in the University of Kansas for many years now, actually, but you've also taught uh, workshops, which you're doing now, and you apparently love teaching workshops. So my question is this, whether or not this guy is right in talking about American literature in the program era, referring to is science fiction and fantasy in the workshop era, where people feel they have to go to workshops to be officially certified as SF writers? You know, that's a really interesting question, which is what people always say when they're jockeying to think. Uh -huh. um, but in fact, I think this is a really interesting question because there's a whole bunch of moving pieces to this. One is, um, are there differences in how uh, genre writers learn their craft and how mainstream writers learn their craft? And um, what is the relationship of the workshop to both of them? Um, long, long ago, sometime shortly after the Crimean War, I um, attended Clarion West. That was actually 1987. So it was a while after the Crimean, but <laughs> 1987. There's and, been another Crimean War since then. It so was it's probably, yeah. <laughs> it's actually true, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, so, so I... Um, 
And when I attended that, I was still a, a new minted writer. Everybody then would say, um, well, you can build a career without attending one of the Clarions, you should. Mm -hmm. If there's a way you can attend a Clarion, you should attend Clarion or Clarion West because you'll learn a lot, you'll make a lot of contacts, your writing will jump forward two years. There were a whole mm -hmm. lot of little statements that were made. And so for many of us, that was the height of early stage writer ambition was to get mm -hmm. into one of the Clarion. Um, later on, other workshops were added. Um, Two-week workshops started. Um, workshops like Jim Gunn's uh, were operating. So there were all these different ways, but there was still a sense that the workshop was important. Um, yeah. But the workshop also included your writing group at home because an awful lot of writers I know learned how to write by being mm -hmm. in a group of peers mm -hmm. who all got together once a month or once mm -hmm. a week and they talked about writing. The very first workshop I was in was once a month. And uh, we would all get together and uh, for three and a half hours, we would all talk about everything but writing. And then for 15 minutes, we'd talk about the one story that somebody had submitted, which sounds a whole lot like a book club these days. Um, so, so that was sort of the way we all thought, you know, the Clarion's help, but, um, MFAs at that point, MAs, MFAs, PhD, there were no PhDs for creative writing at that point, right. I don't think. Um, but all of those people were so resistant to genre that it was only with the greatest of difficulty or just flat lying that you could get into one of those programs. So you would submit a mainstream thing, and then when you got there, you would learn what you could. Um, uh, or you would sin boldly, and as soon as you get in, say, ha-ha, I write genre, deal with it. It. Um, mm -hmm. But most of the time you were precluded from the sort of program system, the idea that publishing, you know, you became a published writer by going to a MFA, a, an academic creative writing program to learn how right. to do it. Um, so I think that um, one part of this is that um, I do think what he says is quite accurate about how the program, uh, the MFA program has had a just a, a very, very tight hold on what is considered good literature in a broad sense. Um, it's not that you have to have an MFA, but you kind of have to write like an MFA. You have to write as though you did come through one to be a successful mainstream writer. There are always exceptions, but generally speaking, if you scratch hard enough at somebody's bio, you find that they did some creative writing at the academic level, um, usually an MFA these days, um, which is a super long way to say that I think that um, that. It did change, the MFA program did change what we consider acceptable li mainstream literature. Um, but then as genre literature has gotten more and more popular, I feel like uh, the main, uh, main science fiction has now been sort of mm. shaping itself into conforming to some of the requirements of mainstream uh, MFA literature. Um, and I think that there's... What I find especially interesting about this is to compare this to the genres that right now are still not acceptable in MFAs. Writing a romance novel that is not meant to be romance, romance forward, um, and there's going to be sex on page seven, you know, and it's going to be all about feels all the way through, that would be a very hard sell in an MFA, unless it had literary pretensions as well. There was a, uh, I was, I was writing, I've written letters for people trying to get Guggenheim. And I, I realized even this year on the Guggenheim guidelines for applicants for in literature, uh, there's a line that says genre work, parentheses, science fiction, fantasy, romance, and mystery are not considered. I think the word eligible wasn't there, but it was essentially that. But yeah. my, my, other point, my other question was that where do people learn to write science fiction and fantasy? The Clarion workshops you're talking about are pretty much all descendants of the Milford workshops. Damon Knight and, and, and Kate Wilhelm started back, what, in the late 50s, early 60s, maybe? Mm -hmm. And until then, uh, when I look at um, autobiographies of writers, when I talk to writers from that era, nobody, nobody went to workshops. The idea of the science fiction writing workshop seems to have been largely an invention of of Wilhelm and, and Knight. Yeah. Before well, that, I think that, and that ahead. totally makes sense, actually, because um, Knight was, you know, an editor in the field. And I think the original 
sort of heartbeat of learning how to teach science or how to write science fiction was um, you wrote something and an editor got back to you and said, oh, you know, don't care for this, but, you know, I'd like this a lot better if such and such happened. So the relationship between the wannabe writer and the editor was the thing you did. But the other thing you did was peer review. You hung out with your friends, you know, every Saturday in somebody's basement and you would talk to each other. And that's, you know, that points back to the old, the way writing was learned in the 19th century, you know, at Oxford. You didn't take a a creative writing class. What you did is that you were doing creative writing for fun and you would get together with your friends over a beer and you would read to each other. Um, So I, I think that that's part of what happened is that there was no workshop tradition, but that sort of hybridizing of the editor uh, wannabe writer relationship yeah. and the peer relationship is what builds the workshop as we understand it. Um, and then we have, you know, the workshop start and all various degrees of intensity, you know, so yeah. visiting instructors, everything from two day workshops or four day workshops, one week, two week, you know, uh, you know, workshops that are exp- expand across six months, workshops that are six weeks, you know, there's all these different strategies. Is there also an element at play where it's part of the life cycle of the career of a writer now, where you start, you go to workshops, you get published, you get a name for some kind of, in some kind of way, you then start your own workshop and you start running your own things because you need to be making money because you're going to spend part of your time selling work and then you're doing this other thing so then that becomes another sort of self-perpetuating part of the engine like well i know that this is what i'm going to do i've sold one book it is now time for me to launch my workshop mm-hmm. you know i wonder i do i do wonder that it's the same thing as writing books about creative writing you know that at some point mm. people do feel like um i've learned how to do this thing and i'm because I think all the time about how a novel gets put together or a short story. Therefore, I think that I can verbalize that in a way that it will help other people. And I think some of it is financial. Um, You know, how many of these people would do this if there were no money involved? And I think for many of us in the early stages, we absolutely would do it for no money um, because we're just finding our way into a career. A science fiction career almost always is not, and I'm using science fiction in that sort of collective way, that includes fantasy and and things like that. A career, a genre career, is a combination of things, and writing is just one of them. It, yeah. You know, you go to cons, you write your book, you um, maybe you edit an anthology, maybe you become an editor, maybe you teach a workshop or a seminar, or you're invited to a con where you teach a seminar or you do a coffee clutch or something like that. So in our field, um, we're we're almost expected to be present in all of these, in as many of these venues as we can be. And the writers who step back from that or who do not feel comfortable with that or don't want to do that, so, um, that's, that is a challenging decision to make because you're removing yourself from sort of the one of the standard patterns of getting yeah. going. Um, there's some problems with that because not everybody wants to stand up in front of a bunch of people and talk and yet you feel obligated um not everybody wants to edit them you know edit something and yet that's the looks foolishly to many people me included um in the past as an economical way to get your name on the front cover of a book without having to actually write the whole damn thing now it's much more work than that (laughs) as it happens <laughs> but if the option is, you know, I'm going to have to write this whole novel, a hundred thousand miserable words, or I'm going to have to talk a bunch of other people to write a hundred thousand miserable words, um, you know, it's like they're different skills, and the one, if you don't know anything about it, looks easier than the other. Jonathan, go ahead, Jonathan. I was going to say, I, and I guess that one of the problems is for a, a writer, for if you are a young person, or or no, not a young person, just a person at the beginning of their writing career. A workshop is not necessarily going to work for everyone. They can be as harmful as they can be positive. There is a frustration element, I'm sure, in the difficulty of accessibility. They're not available to everybody because they are expensive quite often to attend. They take time to attend that you may not have available to you. So there's a true barrier to being present in those things. And then when you get there, it really comes down to things like, your personality. I mean, you were talking about the idea that you go to a a workshop 
you go to a, a course and you get the chance to network, to make connections, to build a cohort, but you may not be a networky cohorty type of person and you could work away with nothing. You may not respond well to the, the tutors that you have. I mean, I've, I mm-hmm. was Absolutely. a tutor at one of the, one of the clarions, right. And I've saw what I thought people needed there, uh, which oddly for a lot of them was simply just permission to do what they were doing. If that makes sense. That seemed mm-hmm. to me like a very, very large part of that process, um, which would probably surprise them in retrospect, but um, they don't always work, do they? No. I mean, I've taught many workshops in many venues. Um, I attended workshops. I started three MFAs before I actually finished one. And each time I scrubbed, not because I wasn't a good writer, but because it was a bad match. Um, I didn't like the way it was taught. I was trying to do something they didn't care for. And sooner or later, I was either, I mean, my solution to finding finding out that people don't like something about me is usually to just walk away. And I was doing <laughs> that in workshop as well. Um, but, uh, and then I've taught seminars at Gen Con. I've taught, you know, the usual things at cons. I've taught, um, but I've also taught at both Clarions and I've taught at Odyssey and I've taught, you know, my workshops and I've taught Jim Gunn's workshop. So I've done a lot of workshop environments and I'm always thinking about this because mostly people come into a workshop with 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 a stated desire and in science fiction it's usually to make a living or to be a successful writer of genre literature um, mighty few of them come in and say my stated desire is to win the Pulitzer or my stated desire is to um, get you know buy it to love my fiction or something like that um, so, so you come in with what you think is your goal, but is not, often not your goal. Um, your goal can be anything. Your goal can be to write something my mom won't throw across the room. Your goal can be, to, I, I want to write something that um, will make my boyfriend really sorry he ditched me. I want to write something because I have this I have this yearning to be seen and this seems mm. like the safest or maybe the interestingest or the, the easiest way to be seen. So they're like all these reasons and they all kind of require different approaches. And yet the problems are the same, you know, yeah. the problem of how do you tell a compelling story? How do you string enough interesting content, but not too much interesting content into the 20 minutes or six hours of another person's life. That problem is the same, no matter what, you think you're doing with your writing. Um, And that problem, if people have a lot of ego invested in themselves as a writer, which is not the same thing Mm. as ego invested in themselves or ego invested in their works, um, it can be very, very difficult. Somebody says this story is just Jim Gunn, who was one of my first and most influential instructors. He would just say, oh, this just isn't a very good story. Um, you know, collect what you, you know, learn what you can, move on. And uh, Gary, I know you studied with him as well. I mean, he, it could be pretty soul searing if you were married to that story to have him say, oh, this just isn't that good. And what he's thinking is this is not a particularly publishable story, but what you were thinking is this is my heart or this is my cleverest yeah. idea laid out with enorm- enormous labor. Um, and that disconnect can be very, very, hard to accept. So you're right. Not everybody um, is adaptable. You know, when I went to Clarion, um, there had just been an article in Asimov's about two years before about the Clarion way. And um, it was very... It was very much bringing some of this stuff up, you know, that uh, the Clarions, any intensive workshop has a risk of burning people out because they're not, they're not comfortable yet with the level of change that they are being expected to make at the tempo that it needs to happen. Does that kind of make sense? Mm. Yeah, sort of. I, I think <laughs> you, you've mentioned Jim, and I think one of the things I've heard from you and many others about Jim as a teacher was that he was flexible enough to realize that what you wanted to do may not be the same thing that he would want to do. In other words, uh, even though he was a very traditional old line uh, science fiction editor and and writer dating back to the 40s, that you could present a story, maybe not a story as radical as Spar, but you could present something going off in a different direction. And he would recognize that you were going off in that direction and respect that. Um, 
And other teachers I've heard about, including Clarion teachers, had the notion that if you can't sell this to Horace Gold or John W. Campbell, it's not worth writing. And that strikes me as being potentially destructive and something that students would have to to guard themselves against to some extent. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. There is a a real sense of um, uh, confusion between uh, the the creative act of making a story, you know, the decisions you make, the words you put down, that stuff. That requires a specific part of your brain. Revision is part of that as well, but that's a different part of your brain. Um, But all of that is completely independent of whether or not it's a publishable story. Um, You know, uh, you can write an utterly beautifully written and carefully characterized story, and it may not be publishable for any of a number of reasons. And you're out of control of that. And so it it, it does happen that you you can be, uh, but you can confuse those. Um, I send this story out, nobody buys it. Um, Does that mean the story was bad or does that mean that the story wasn't publishable? Those are two different statements. Um, and yet we well, and confuse pub- them all the time. And publishable is a, is a malleable term also, uh, meaning that publishable where I think I, I may have told you this kid, so I apologize, but I had one creative writing class at the University of Kansas and it was not from Jim Gum. And there were um, some continuing education students in the class. And they were, this sounds like a stereotype, but there were two women who were literally little old ladies. And they were taking a creative writing class because they wanted to sell cute poems to Good Housekeeping magazine, which mm-hmm. is a legitimate thing to do. Let's Shirley MacLaine sold cute things to Good Housekeeping. So, but the teacher of the class was Joseph Heller, and he had no idea in the world what to do with a middle-aged lady wanting to sell poems to Good Housekeeping. He basically said he knew less about it than they did, and he was right. But in He was also a guy who grew up as an advertising copywriter, so he knew different kinds of writing. One of the things I remembered liking about him was he completely respected their ambition to become lady poets for for ladies' magazines. (laughs) Poetesses. He had no idea what to say to them. He had no no understanding of that genre at all. I think that is one of the challenges. Um, Anytime you collect, one of the advantages we have with uh, a workshop like mine or a clarion or something like that is that everybody is there. There may be differences, but ultimately everybody agrees to certain shared goals. We all want to write genre. Nobody goes into it with a secret passion to write murder mysteries and they're just taking the clarions (laughs) because they need to be able to, you know, because they're going to learn special stuff that they can then leverage into their their mysteries. Um, So there are some shared goals, which means that there's also shared vocabulary, there's um, shared expectations. There are a lot of differences, but there's a lot of stuff that's the same. Um, Where I I actually, the people who are teaching where you can end up with somebody who's writing a classic, you know, uh, Zane Grey style Western um, Mm -hmm. and uh, in the same class, somebody who's ri- trying to write a 300-word story, that a comic story that that Reader's Digest might have bought back in the day, that's that's much harder because the goals are completely different. You know what? And yeah. the the act of writing remains the same. The act of engaging with the words as you create them and then as you revise them is the same, but ultimately it's a different goal. I just had this discussion because I am in the middle of workshopping right now, and Barbara Webb, who is co-teaches with me, believes strongly yeah. that the short story, the novelette, the novella, and the novel are all fundamentally different. That, And I was pushing her on this because I think there are some gray zones, but mm-hmm. to her mind, you could write something that has the soul of a novelette, and it could be 45,000 words long. Um, and I'm like, that is an interesting stance to me. Um, but that also, you know, when we think of it more broadly, I think, yes, the, even these length things, we talk about this, you know, it, how similar are they? Can they, are, do they blur into each other or are they specific, unique acts? Well, can she unpack that at all? Because I'm fascinated because uh, within some science fiction circles, the novelette is actually a controversial uh, category, you know, something made up to exist between a short story and a novella. Mm-hmm. But I can, I can see, like, I can sort of see there are there are novels that feel like novel novellas and short stories run amok. Mm-hmm. Uh, there yes. are novellas that feel like novelettes that have been stretched too far. 
uh, and so on. But I don't know that I can readily articulate, and I don't know if you can or is or you can, what would make any one of those you know, categories intrinsically right for a story? Isn't it more this idea that you write the story that's there as well and as economically as you can and it fits somewhere? I mean, I'm not sure that I can articulate what would what those the intrinsic characteristics of those categories would be. Mm-hmm. Barbara would say, um, yeah. because she said it Put to words me, in her mouth. <laughs> because she said it to me yesterday, um, oh, okay. is that um, the differences have to do with sort of how you control your individual scenes in a story and your entrance and exit strategies. Um, we're both structuralists, and when we teach novels, that's what we're interested in, um, is talking about sort of the the mechanics of how novels operate. And so to her mind, you start a short story, the entrance strategy is quite different than it would be in a novella. It's easy if it's they're skipped one apart like that. Um, she would say you, your entrance, you're not in a short story. Uh, typically, we, we try to start as close to the end as we can. Yeah. And, uh, um, and then we fill in. If, if we have backstory stuff, it, we treat it as black backstory. Um, with a novella, we are more likely to walk slightly into the story. And if you have a novel that starts in the middle of a running gunfight, for instance, um, usually the novel slows down shortly after that and then does the work of entering, bringing the reader into a world that they are going to spend some hours in. So to her, she would say, how you start is different. Also the length of scenes and also the work you expect scenes to, and I don't agree about length, but but the work you expect the scene to do. Um, you're in a short story, you're just going to be, um, you know, sort of balancing your, your scenic writing with your narrative writing slightly differently. Um, because if it's all, if you have too much narrative writing, it starts to feel sort of fairy tale like or fabulous. Um, whereas with a novel, um, we have a long tradition of enormous amounts of narrative writing built into novels. In fact, novels where four or five or seven pages go by before the next actual scenic mm. moment. So it's a, some of this is, it'd be kind of hard to explain without me having some examples in front to talk to you sure, about. Sure. But, but um, that would be her argument. And my argument is that it's a little more malleable than that, but that there are I would. I can usually look at a story and say, I think this is a novella, you know, fairly early on, as opposed to a very short novel. And is that a pacing thing? Because I feel, as a reader, there's a pacing thing happening. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you pick something up and you immediately feel like, okay, we're going to. I mean, irrespective. I mean, in some ways, one of the the gifts of the digital reading world is you don't see the the extent of the story that you're reading in front of you. So you have to take it. Um, it's purely on what you're reading. Mm-hmm. And in that environment, you've got that situation where you're sort of going, how far how, do, how far does this feel like it's going? Where is it going? How fast is it going to go? And if it's going quickly, even if it's not a lightning-paced piece, but if it's going quickly, then it's generally going to be shorter. And the other thing is it feels like to me it comes down to the number of questions you're asking the story to answer. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's a novel true. not has a a core set of questions and sub questions that come in that shore up what you're talking about. A short story generally is just one thing, mm-hmm. and a very short, concise thing, and and from there that seems to me where that comes in. Yeah, I think you're right. The pacing is and a really important part of this. Um, I think that uh, uh, that the questions that the story is asking uh, absolutely is an important part of this. Jim Gunn um, would say uh, that the novella was sort of the platonic shape of science fiction because mm-hmm. it had no need for subplots. Uh, a novel, in order to make a satisfying novel, you're going to be bringing in multiple themes, more characters maybe, more uh, more more things are going to happen, which may take you off the true line that is the thought experiment that started this story. And you look at a lot of the early science fiction and it's short um, because Mm -hmm. like Hal Clement, an awful lot of Hal Clement is a slim, slim volume. And some of that is because they were printing it in tiny type because 
books are expensive. (laughs) But some of that was also just that he did not waste any time on B plots. He did not waste any time on, you know, once he got his his, uh, clockwork set up, he did not suddenly insert some strange circumlocution or move over to some other, you know, here's the other side of the story or anything. So I do think that Mm. there is some stuff like that. You know, a short story tends to have, it has a point. It may do many things if you are very good, but ultimately it's not going to do things with the leisure that even if it covers some of the same topics, it will not do it with the leisure that a novel can afford. There's another thing mm-hmm. I've been reading, plug for something I'm doing in a couple of weeks. I've been reading some Bradbury stories because I'm doing a thing for the Library of America online on the 19th sometime. But I've also was reading a lot of a number of Shirley Jackson's. And one of the things that struck me about both of them is that in, in an effective short story, a lot of the narrative takes place outside of the frame of the story. Uh, that is, you're filling in a lot of material, which might be filled in uh, in a novella and might be elaborated upon in, in all kinds of ways in a novel. And I, it's interesting to see this because when I was thinking about Shirley Jackson, the the 75th anniversary of the lottery was just last week, I think, or something. And I remember, I've not looked at it in years, but at some point there was a TV movie of the lottery which made a 90-minute movie out of the story. And it just washed the story away. In other words, there was mm-hmm. nothing left because it basically explained everything you're supposed to gradually, horrifyingly realize is happening. And as a result, the end of the movie had no impact at all. And I and I've, I've been watching another thing that really, this is getting into media, but there's something about this kind of storytelling that affects media as well. I was mm-hmm. watching um, the Sci-Fi Channel doing reruns, back-to-back reruns of The Twilight Zone, but it was Jordan Peele's The Twilight Zone. Uh, oh, yeah. ep- they were an hour-long episode. And I was thinking back to when the Sci-Fi Channel over Halloween does the old Twilight Zone, 27-minute episodes. And what struck me in every one of these hour-long episodes from, what, five or six years ago when Field was there, was that they were about 27 minutes long in terms of actual yep. narrative with a, yep. lot of, <laughs> a lot of padding to make it into an hour. Yeah, certain kinds of stories, I mean, they have a natural length. And, um, you know, if you if you go too long, you've overextended. And I think that what you're calling out are, are what I think of, I call punchline stories, even though it's it's a revelation, what, what Damon Knight would call a story of revelation. The man. slow right. unpacking of a moment um, that you, what the real movement in the story is not this, within the story. The real movement is when the reader recognizes that every Everything they thought they knew should be read in a completely different way. And so I think that's true that, um, you know, uh, that works quite well at the 27 minute, the 22 minute yeah. length. Um, at the hour length, now it has to be a plot. And now there has to be like development and there has to be, you know, counter movements and climaxes and stuff like that. And as soon as you start to add all of that to make it a 90 minute, and I'm also looking at the, uh, the cold equation um, movie, yeah. same thing. Um, you know, it's like at some point um, it becomes a story that is about the story instead of a story that's about the revelation. Well, and also, uh, that, it's a, go ahead. I'm finishing. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, I was going to say, it's also a, uh, in, in the case of the Cold Equations movie or other adaptations like that, there's an effort on the part of an ambitious screenwriter to do some character development. And you want to shout at the screen, these characters don't want to be developed. These are not characters. <laughs> this is not characters. These right. characters are presenting an argument. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, they are. They have a formal role within the story, which is to stand up and say the things that need to be said for this argument to develop itself. Um, and it, you know, in the case of like cold equation, absolutely, it's an argument. It's like, um, you know, what can we do? Well, what about A? No. B? No. C? No. So it really feels like that. But even something like the lottery, there's still the argument being made is, you know, is essentially that final twist. And everything that leads up to that really you know, knowing more about those characters does not make it more no, horrible. It, it makes us relate to those characters differently because like, and also the ones uh, who walk away from Omalas, the Ursula Le Guin story. Yeah. Um, that's another case where if you do too much developmental work, you miss the point, which is the point. Yeah. And the point, and I'm sure she was very conscious in that there are essentially no characters in that story. There's really yeah. not a point of view that we follow at all. 
Yeah, the point of view is the person telling you, the narrator's voice is what drives that. And that's true, but a lot of those sorts of things, the stance of the story is as important as the story itself, with short fiction, I should say. Novels, the stance of the story can also be important, but with that particular kind of short story, it almost always is. There's a lot of talk when you are talking to people about saleable fiction, publishable fiction, award-winning fiction about what is good or or not. And, you know, you get people who will say, you know, the thing that should win would be the thing that's the best. And there'll be some idea of what the best may or may not mean, whether that makes any sense. And it crosses my mind listening to you talk about um, characters, their role in a story, scenes, their uh, and their roles in stories. How much do you think those things are technical absolutes, and how many do you, uh, how much do you think they are cultural things? We expect characters in these situations to do things rather than necessary or be used for this purpose, rather than necessarily what you would re- need to do in terms of effectively building your structure. You know, I will say that, you know, it's all cultural. I mean, sure. it's like what we expect, how char- what what is considered an acceptable story topic, what is considered an acceptable story pacing, what kinds of problems should a ca- character meet in the middle of a story. Um, and they're easy. I mean, that's evident all the time. The simplest thing is, th- um, is to think about just the impossibility of writing a book in the 19th century centered on menstruation, for example, Mm. just couldn't happen. Nobody could write that book. Um, There's no way that could happen because the culture wasn't in a place where it would accept that. Not even amongst women would there have been a thing where, you know, the the women would share this book amongst themselves. No, it just wouldn't have happened. Um, But I, but the idea of what is a good book or a good story, I mean, that is part of the problem with all of these awards, and we are in mm. award season again, um, because um, because what what is a great book? I mean, there's great storytelling, which is the thing you can't put down. And if you look at that, you can see the craft decisions that make it unput downable, um, even if it is improbable, wretched, poorly written, over the top, whatever. But you can also see the things they did that make it weirdly addictive. One of them is short, often short scene lengths because Uh the reader uh, is imprinted on a certain scene length. And if a story is a little shorter than the scene lengths they are imprinted on, they'll go on to the next scene and that looks exactly like being hooked on this story, if that makes sense. So essentially... You know, I have X amount of attention and I'm already halfway into the next scene before I have lagged. I've gotten to the end of my smoke break. And so I just keep reading. Um, Whereas there's also things that are, uh, you know, written where you, the prose sings, um, but it's not, but it's not prioritizing the same thing. So, so what a quality, you know, what is the best story depends on the audience, and because we use the same awards to acknowledge, you know, elegant language and, you know, exhilarating storytelling and every other possibility, you know, and clever uses of science fictional or fantasy tropes and, you know, um, books that change the soul, you know, we use, we use the same awards to do all of those things. And that's part of why I think you get such acrimonious, dis- you know, differences of opinion. You know, one person is like, yeah, but this is inarguably the most elegant book on the ballot. And somebody else says, yeah, but this is inarguably the most fun book on the ballot, Mm -hmm. the one that I read with the most enthusiasm. And some of that's the reader, but also some of that is the differing intention of the writers and their ability to carry it off. But the the result is inevitably comparing apples and potatoes. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the mere fact that we are comparing heroic fantasies with, you know, like uh, extremely gritty urban, you know, uh, or space opera or something like that, you know, how similar are these things, you know, uh, we, and yet we do because they share a toolbox and to some extent they share the fact that we all call them the same thing. Hmm. It would be interesting to ask the question of, let's say, Take the the new newly announced Hugo ballads, which we haven't mentioned, but the Hugo ballad is, is out before we have recorded this, and ask people who were voting on it if they were to if they were asked to name the most beautiful novel this year, would it be the same novel that they would name as their favorite novel or as the best novel 
or is the most. Yeah. Or, in other words, you could take any one of these dimensions and apply it to the list and probably come up with a different winner every time. I think so. I mean, and ultimately, you, you put, you're on to something when you say, you know, the book you liked the most, because ultimately hmm. that's what we vote for. But, um, but you know, the book that is um, most beautifully, most interestingly structured, the book that is most elegantly written, the book that is most emotionally satisfying. Those are three different categories, and none of those are the book that pleases me the most. Right. Um, or the so, one that blows my mind in a science fictional conceptual way. Yes, yes. The one that I'm just, that, you know, just shook me loose because it was yeah. so smart about its science or about its world building. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like if you go back 40 odd years ago to make it less personal for people today, and you look mm -hmm. at uh, the Hugo novel ballot for that year, right? There were five novels up for it Project Pope by Clifford Simak, The Many Colored Land by Julian May. Mm -hmm. Down Below Station by C.J. Cherry, The Claw of the Conciliator by Gene Wolfe, and Little Big by John, by John Crowley. Mm -hmm. Now, that is not like to like to like. No, uh, Little Big does not pay off the way the Many Colored Land does or does not pay off and isn't in almost the same language as Project and Pope. Yeah, and the Simac yeah. is, is like out there as this like sort of eccentric outlier. So no, that's true. They pay off differently, and uh, um, you know it's they're, they're, I always feel like there's some sort of conventional wisdom that the Nebula is going to be the award that writers like the best, and the Hugo is going to be the award that readers like the best. You know, it's going to be the popular award hmm. people you know if you win the hugo that's because a whole lot of people loved you now the dragon uh dragon con award i can't remember the name right now but that's meant to be even more of that yeah you know so that's going to be even more of a populist quote populist award because more popples people are going to be involved in the decision um but it's also you know the each time each of these has a different sort of uh group it's drawing from and that means it's going to emphasize different things. Um, if you took every single sort of cross-section demographic of the field and said, okay, you get to give an award, what's it going to look like? What are your five top this year? You would have some very, very different lists. Oh, true. And I mean, as you know very well, because you've been around the field for a while too, awards are awards. And, you know, it's like, yes, there are potentially 3,000 people voting for Hugo and there are 300 people voting for a nebula and sometimes you know there are then there are five people deciding who get a world fantasy award and the differences that 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 creates are stark so i mean we look on the hugo award as being a populist award and we you know the nebula is uh portrayed as being the best of the writer's view of the world when in fact what it is is that clubhouse's award exactly it's a popular it's also a popular award it's just a smaller popular group that it's drawing yeah. from yeah. um yeah that's true and i mean jury awards have their own problems but sure. a jury award has different problems than a populist award and i've been on the jury for world fantasy and i mm -hmm. thought it was fascinating you know the discussions that we had and yeah. um the things that we were uh, prioritizing and, uh, you know, so, sort of some of the counter arguments too. It's like, you know, why did this famous writer not make it onto our final ballot? Um, sure. You know, should they have? Because maybe we didn't like this person's book for a lot of reasons, you know? When I ended up, and I think we've all done it, when I ended up on the World Fantasy panel, I began to realize that you were getting back to that level of perception with fiction that you have when you're trying to talk to somebody else about seeing the color blue or tasting cho chocolate or whatever it might be. You know, I read this, what did you read? And then you and start, start having discussions about how do you rank and rate these things? Mm -hmm. And when I uh, say this is number one and that's number five, what's the difference between two and three for me and two and three for you? Is there a vast quality drop? Okay. Are they nice even gradation? We had the strangest fistfights over, over you know, our year. I could see you know? um, making it more granular. And instead of being, you know, one through five, you get to assign 40 points across mm -hmm. up to five books. Um, or, or you can assign 40, you have to assign 40 points. Nobody gets the same number of points. And you can, if you, if you were going to give less than 10 points, then obviously they aren't good enough to even be in your top five. So 
So now you only have four. But I mean, just because I might capture some of that, because you're right. Sometimes you're like, the only one of these books I adore is this one. And then there's a sort of solid B minus over here. And then we're down into the C's. And so if you skip past my number one, and now you're down to my number three, my number three may be a C, but somebody else's number three may be an A minus. True. And the other thing, of course, is just simply as well, like a car tire has to be able to be inflated to 26 PSI pounds per square inch. It has to last a certain amount of time and grip a certain amount. A story just makes you feel or think, mm-hmm. and there is no comparison. So yeah, it's, it's sort of interesting. And this also ties back into the whole publisher, well, the whole difference between publishable and published and all those sort of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I'm teaching my writing classes, um, two uh, – on the, on the university side, on the academic side, one of the things I talk about a lot is that you're really in charge of only less than half of the reasons why you might succeed as a writer. You know, you're in charge of the topics you pick. You're in charge of how you address them. You're in charge of the quality of your craft and your willingness to write and keep writing and keep sending it out. You're in charge of all of that. You are not in charge of any other aspect. Um, you're not in charge of what the field wants. You're not in charge of what people think about you. You're not in charge of any other piece. You know, the fact that they already have published seven, you know, erotic mermaid tales this mm-hmm. month. So they're not buying yours, even if you are the best mermaid writer in the world. It just, they can't. They've already bought. They filled their quota. So that is something that, um, you know, we are in control of some of that. Um, And ideally, we are doing our best on all of those fronts. I know that I have flaws as a writer, and I give it my best shot to cover those things up. (laughs) But but I recognize them. And uh, because those are the things I can control, but I cannot control. Anything after I make decisions to send it out, I really can't control it. Mm. Let's talk a little bit in the last 10 minutes or so about your writing, because you have a new book coming out this fall. I do. Uh, I do. Uh, with, with a great title and a story. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Small Beer is uh, publishing um, The Privilege of the Happy Ending, Small, Medium, and Large Stories. Um, we called it that because... Uh, And it's been an interesting process putting this together because um, the last collection I did was in 2012. And um, I've written much more than a book's worth of short fiction since then, but an awful lot of it was either very, very experimental or very, very not genre, Mm -hmm. So, except for the genre of experimentation. One of the things I'm proudest of is 7,000 words that is a list parsing out a different list. So um, a Lipo story called um, uh, An Attempted Exhausting a Place in Paris by a writer, Georges Perec. I wrote a story called An Attempted Exhausting An Attempted Exhausting a Place in Paris by Georges Perec. End quote. That is the title by Kish Johnson. Um, That's 7,000 words and it is a list and it is um, not even a list with text really. It is just a list shaping so it's an attempt to do some interesting things, but it doesn't belong in a collection that people are going to read at the same time that they're going to read something like Tool Using Mimics, which is a story which actually has a plot line or mm-hmm. multiple plot lines. So I had to sort of sort through all of my stuff to see if there was any way I could pull it together to make it a coherent sort of whole um, there's, uh, and it was challenging because even if I got rid of all of the genre stuff, I was still playing around between very conventionally told stories and very experimentally told stories. And I was, uh, ranging in length, story length between 300 words and 35,000 words. So we, uh, when I first talked to, um, Gavin Grant about this, he was, he was like, I don't know, I don't know, this, this is weird. And I was like, let's make a feature of it. And he was like, I, he's always kind of a gnomic individual to me, mm-hmm. but, um, but I, he, so I said, what about, you know, leaning in on that and calling it small, medium and large stories or SMXL or something like that. And <laughs> like two weeks later, he was like small, medium and large stories. It is. So what it is, it's mostly, um, I spent, because I was working at, at a university, I spent uh, some of the time in the last 10 years playing around in the literary side of things because I wanted to see mm-hmm. what it was like to try to 
have a literary career. Um, and I ended up after doing some of that saying, I probably could have a literary career if I wanted one, but I don't want one, um, which yeah. was very telling for me. I'm not going back and writing more stories. I found a na- my native habitat is a magazine called Diagram magazine mm-hmm. um, and uh, conjunctions. Um, and that's it. So uh, so it's a collect- the stories are just sort of all of the different stories I've written, plus a couple that I wrote that are this will be the only time they've been published. Um, and uh, we've been, it's been sort of, it came up fast because it, basically we'd been talking idly about this. But then when I got the world fantasy thing, I said, now is a golden opportunity mm-hmm. for us. Um, let's hit that window. And Gavin was very enthused about that. So we have been, I just proofed, did the final proof of the final galleys or the modern day equivalent of that today. So now it's off my hands and it's, uh, um, it's been launched to him. And now the next thing I see will be advanced galleys. Yeah. And of course, this is going to be at World Fantasy where people come and get it signed. And of course, there are at least two World Fantasy Award winning stories in there. Yes, yeah. Um, Privilege of the Happy Ending, I think, won the World Fantasy. Did Velvet Bow win? I think Velvet Bow won the World Fantasy. And then there's a whole bunch of them that were finalists. Um, And so that's kind of fun. It's interesting because um, in the last one, there there was the Nebula winners and the Hugo winner. And this time it's all world fantasy all the way. So (laughs) different, I guess I've I've changed the kinds of things I'm writing, but it's also been um, writing these things has been uh, going back and forth between conventional uh, narrative techniques and then formal experimentation. So I'll go back and forth between the two. I don't like to just do formal stories, you know, experimental stories, because I think that it gets easy to become flashy and glib if you well, only a, do those. Is there a relationship between experimental fiction and, and genre fiction? By Well, I, I, I'm saying before I don't like the term genre fiction. Let's just say science fiction or fantasy. Yeah. I'm trying to, I mean, Delaney had had done some things. There are a couple of pieces by Joanna Russ. There, there are some oddball poets like David Bunch who wrote science fiction stories that looked a lot like experimental fiction. And as far as I can tell, the guy who lived in St. Louis, I know nothing about him except he was a poet, wrote a book, a series of stories about a place called Madaran. And as far as I can tell, he had a career in which he could publish these things as experimental fiction in one, uh, experimental prose in one venue and publish them in science fiction in another venue. And in each case, the person thought it was the other thing and got, he got away with it somehow. Yeah. I, I think that's true. Kind of thing. Yeah. I think that's true. Actually. Um, there are, there are some people I'd been sort of accumulating experimental works. And one thing that I noticed was that um, the more you stray from I mean, really, science fiction is a, just a formal experiment in the same way that telling a story like a list is. Um, you've made a decision about the container, that it's going to include rocket ships or aliens or whatever, um, and now you are going to do things with that, that, that it's now going to change the requirements of the story for you to use those things properly. So I, I think I could make that argument in a bar. I probably could make it far more articulately <laughs> than here. But, um, but I think that is, there is some connection. Um, I'm, I do think, though, that um, a lot of these last 10 years was me trying to figure out um, Darko Suvin's estrangement. Um, and I ended up coming with this sort of uh, pattern in my head that immersion and estrangement, immersion is when you get sucked into the story. These are my, my definitions, not Suvin's definitions, but immersion is when you get, you forget that you're reading. You fall into the page and you start noticing the things. You start, you know, yearning or, or being scared or being excited uh, at the same level as the characters. And estrangement is when you are standing outside aware that you are observing the experience. And you may still be excited or estranged yeah. or, or I mean, frightened or whatever, but you're never not aware that it is an artifact. And a, a cinematic equivalent of this is when you see a Wes Anderson story uh, movie, it may move you, it may thrill you, it may charm you, it may do a lot of things, but what it's not doing is allowing you to just forget that you're staring at a screen um, because everything about it, the right, pro- everything from the writing to the, the 
the design are telling you to be aware of what's happening. And he would be, I think, a little disappointed if you didn't notice the fineness of all of that. So um, I think that I this became a conscious experiment for me over the last 10 years, trying to figure out how fast you can move from immersion to estrangement and then back. Mm. And it's sort of, it ends up being sort of a flashy move. So I also then sit down and I try to write stories that are not like that. Um, But it is, uh, you know, can I completely suck you into a character's experience so that you forget your reading and then, snap you out that's easy all you have to do is just make a mistake but then can i snap you back in can i take you from estrangement how many sentences does it take for me to take you from you reading a sentence that is definitionally estranging um sucking you back into the immersive experience. And I learned a bunch of things, one of which is that, interestingly, we do this all the time, um, that, in fact, there are forms like the fairy tale, which are simultaneously immersive and estranging. You know, none of the language is immersive, and yet you are fully participant in the actions. You don't even know the names of the characters sometimes. The kingdoms don't have names. You know, it's all mythic, and yet we get sucked into it. So I was playing around with those margins as well, um, just to see if I could figure out how it works. And I found out a lot about my prose as a result, and also about how story works. Interesting about what can knock you out of it as well, because I've been reading a a, a number of things by, uh, well, Two things come to mind. One is our, our mutual friend John Kessel had talked about reading a science fiction novel by a mainstream writer and coming across one line, which was so not so non-science fictional and so wrong that it took him out of the story entirely. And the other thing that came to mind when you were talking was I think it's the end of Richard Matheson's novel Bedtime Return, which became the movie, the Christopher Reeve movie, Somewhere in Time. And he's there's there's a dime which he has with him when he goes back into the past. The idea is if you dress up in 1890s clothes and go to the Dakota in New York, Mm -hmm. you will end up, or or, or the Mackinac Grand Hotel in Mackinac, you will wake up back in the 1890s. And it plays out as a romance throughout the movie until he opens his pocket of his trousers and realizes he has a 1970 dime in it. And the minute he looks at that, the whole thing collapses and Mm -hmm. he realizes it's all fake. And, And it's... And I always read that when I even read it in the novel before I saw the movies. This is this is what can happen to you in a story. If you make one mistake mm-hmm. in a story, that's all it takes to yank you out of it entirely. Right. If you're a good enough writer um, and you make one stupid step, they I mean, you've already earned a certain amount of goodwill. Essentially, you've been bribing them through your entire story. Um, and so when you make that mistake, you know, they're still counting the $20 bills that you've been offering them all the way through. So they're willing to sit with you because there will be another $20 bill coming up pretty quick here. Um, but generally, yeah, it's if you're not giving enough rewards, enough pleasure bursts, as George Saunders would say, early, you know, then when you do get to that point, you're like, okay, this book will disappoint me. This story will be disappointing because this author does not know what, you know, they, they, yeah. they broke my, my illusion. Or and so I'm just not going to keep trying. Or, 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 I'm already out. I'm going to check my phone, you know? <laughs> so I think it also depends where you make the mistake. Yeah. Well, yeah. 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 In the early you know, stages, nobody's invested. So if I read something in the first page of the first chapter, they make mistakes. I just, you know, I don't need to stay. I haven't invested yeah. anything yet. But, but not even just from beginning to end of story, but where in the structural construction of your world you've made that you know some things are not plausibly forgivable when you hit them the whole (laughs) house of cards just suddenly just goes poof yeah and it's different based on the medium because i put up with crap from movies that i would never accept from a book and i also put up with crap from like a 1940s book that i would never put up with from a modern book i expect i have higher standards um, for for the modern book because they know the rules. Um, you know when they're still writing the rules, I get it if they if they miss a stitch because they didn't know yet what exactly they were trying to do. They had not they, mm-hmm. they hadn't discovered it yet. One of the things about putting together a collection of short fiction of your own of your, well, of your own short fiction is that it forces you to look back at a period of time 
when you are assembling work, you know, at the mouth of the river of bees covers a certain period in your writing life. Mm-hmm. Um, the privilege yeah. of the happy ending, a different one. Looking at where you are now, has the kind of things you want to write now changed mm-hmm. coming out of that privilege of the happy ending period? That is a really cool question. Um, I did notice as I was putting this together um, the things that had changed. Um, I Back in 2012, I had not written a single story that engaged at all with my personal experience growing up in Iowa in the 1960s. And at least three of the stories in Privilege of the Happy Ending do in very explicit ways. You know, there is a mythic town um, in fact, I call it out in one of the stories, Ratatosker, you know, this is Ray Bradbury country, um, the story says in the first paragraph. Um, so, so I have been doing that. And now moving forward, I'm actually really curious about that. I know what the next project is, and it's a longer project. But the short fiction, I'm finding, um, uh, I'm, I'm getting quite interested in sort of uh, interpolating experiences in a way I hadn't done. You know, all of the stories in, um, you know, the first one, At the Mouth of the River of Bees, well, except for that story, they all take place in other places. You know, yeah. they take place in worlds that are not our world or worlds that are our world, but with significant differences. And these are a lot more gray zone And I think that I'm not done exploring that. I think I'm also really interested in exploring, as I did with Vela Bow, exploring um, sort of uh, aging. I realized that... You know, most fiction focuses on the young person's experience, coming of age, coming into power, um, you know, uh, we're finding your place in a ever-growing, what looks like an ever-growing world, you know, a bigger and bigger place. And I think stories of age are stories about um, accepting, you know, stories of accepting compromise, accepting the the reductions of your options. And it's like finding triumph inside of that. And I, that's mm-hmm. a topic I'm really getting interested in because I, I feel like nobody, there isn't enough writing about this yet. Um, and yeah. I'm curious about it. But I also just, I just want to write some bravura stuff again, because, you know, all of these really careful, all these formal things, you know, they, they had to stay close to normal experience because you you have you have to tap out on something. You cannot be both experimentally very bold and crazed, and write a story where the where the concepts are crazy. You there has to be something for the reader to hang on to. Yeah. Um, that can be the familiarity of form, or that can be the familiarity of topic. But um, but you have to ha- give them something they can hang on to. And I am aware of this because the the next project I'm doing. Um, uh, because it's told from the point of view of a Corvid, I was starting to push myself into a corner where the all of the dialogues were going to be uh, matrices. So instead of it being, you know, boy, I sure wish they'd bring that dinner. Instead, there would be a uh, essentially a block of concepts and text that would be a combination of sensory experience and body language and all of the things that you cannot capture that we capture just automatically by virtue of we're humans and we all know we catch all the subtext and all of the body text because we're used to reading humans but in order for me to make another species familiar i was trying this idea of matrices. And I was like, I can't do it all. It cannot be both a wonky space opera and be impenetrable to a reader. It can be one or the other, but it cannot do both. <laughs> so I think a lot about that stuff. The other thing you've done in the last 15, and we're running over time, but I'll make this quick. Slightly. But you've also looked at some classic works. You've looked. You've gone back and revisited, you mentioned Gullivore. You've revisited, revised Lovecraft, done the same thing with Kenneth Graham. And I know you like to read this older weird fiction. So, do you have any plans to read? Oh, William Hope Hodgson. William Hope (laughs) Hodgson calls to me. Um, And also, I mean, I kind of fell in love with George Griffith, who wrote a book called Honeymoon in Space in about 1901, something like that, where this guy falls in love. It's it's a little creepery. You know, he sort of ends up with her in sort of a um, blurred, 
lines kind of way, but then their honeymoon is spent visiting places in space. So it's kind of a romance novel of the time. It's also oh. kind of a science fiction exploration novel. I'm finding that one a really into, and it's silly as anything. Oh my goodness, it's silly. But um, but I kind of love the over-the-topness of it. And that it's sort of in that Edgar Rice Burroughs you know, manner. It's like, and throwing the kitchen sink into the story and here's our snake aliens and here's our dog aliens and here's our pony aliens and everything. So it's really fun. But I think William Hope Hodgson and Clark Ashton Smith are the two people I'm finding most. And Paul Shearbart's Les Sabendio, which is um, an early 20th century crazed piece of science fiction. So I still haven't figured out if there's anything that can be done with that. If I'm thinking about the canon, um, then I think probably the people I'm most likely to play with right now um, would be P.G. Woodhouse, actually, because I love that voice and I want to see if I can pull something off that is not dishonoring <laughs> the Woodhouse name. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like a busy time, but for the moment, the privilege of the happy ending will be out in October. October 21st. We will, for we will 20- see each other at the World Fantasy Convention in Kansas City over the closing weekend of October of this year. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that's that's us. Thank you so very, very much for making time to Thank talk to you. us today. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks for letting me rant. I love to rant, so I appreciate the chances. And it's always delightful to see you, and let's do this again. Let's do it Absolutely. Again. And until we do, this has been the Coop Street Podcast.